Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio during a uh, spring-like J-term here at Wisconsin Lutheran College. Um, as we are sitting down after having taught Pauline Epistles and, uh, is it called Christian Worship or what's the worship class officially called? Um, theology of Christian Worship. Theology of Christian Worship uh, for four hours in the morning. Um, but we are recording today on an article, Justification by Faith in Luther's Small Catechism, that appeared a while back in Logia, a journal of Lutheran theology, um, entitled, once again, Justification by Faith in Luther's Small Catechism. And that article is by James Arne Nestigan, um, who has uh, recently gone home to heaven. Um, Jim Nestigan was... Uh, a speaker I always enjoyed hearing, and he has a number of videos on YouTube from speaking in Norway um, and other places. I'd encourage you to check those out. Um, but a, a wonderful Lutheran theologian, I would say a very uh, a big personality, a very uh, joyful man whose laugh um, you did not forget mm-hmm. if you heard it, um, who also was connected with uh, 1517, with whom Mike and I do work, uh, spoke at 1517 conferences, was often in attendance there, was presented with a fest shrift by 1517, uh, handing over the goods, I believe that was called, um, which is a nice uh, book <clears throat> as well um, for those who may be interested. And so uh, I use um, in the Luther class, I'm going to be using a number of journal articles, and this is one I was looking at using, and then with Jim's passing, um, <clears throat> I had talked to Mike, and I thought this might not be a bad one to use for an episode as well. Um, as with most things that uh, that Jim did, the article is very uh, pastoral in its orientation. And so just for those who don't, didn't know, uh, <clears throat> this is a new name uh, for them, um, or for those just who did know him uh, but don't necessarily realize all that, that he did, I wanted to start just by reading um, parts of, of the obituary um, that were posted for him. It was a very nice obituary. It kind of made me want to sit down and write mine because um, I think it hit all the, the key themes, the right notes. Uh, but James Nestigan, uh, James Arnie Nestigan, 77, was uh, returned to Christ Jesus on December 31st, 2022, the same day as uh, Pope Benedict and uh, someone else that day. I can't remember <coughs> who else. Um he is survived by his wife, Carolyn, and then a number of children and grandchildren. James Nestigan was a Norwegian-American child of the prairie. And if you ever heard his voice, you could hear that in it. Um, born of a storytelling tradition that he lived out throughout his, throughout his life, doing so with joy, skill, and a fair dose of humor. In his profession as a pastor, author, speaker, teacher, and professor of church history at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, as well as with his family and friends, he enjoyed nothing more than trading stories and laughters with a rare off-color joke thrown in. The central story of his life was his belief in Christ's promise that through the grace of God, we, though by nature sinful, confess um, uh, are forgiven and welcomed into eternal life. It is this story that inspired a life of study, teaching, scholarship, and service following his father <coughs> excuse me, and father-in-law. In this vocation, he took great joy in the colleagues, friends, uh, troublemakers, and sinners that he met and with whom he shared a common faith. 
Jim graduated from Concordia College in Moorhead uh, in 1967, earned an MDiv from Luther Seminary in 1971, served as a pastor, uh, as an intern, and then as a pastor in Washington and Oregon and Toronto, and he received his THD from the University of Toronto in 1984. He was the author of hundreds of popular uh, and scholarly articles, as well as the books, and, and here's two that, um, uh, that are big for me um, in my own work, uh, one of them being the Lutheran Confessions, History and Theology of the Book of Concord, uh, the other being Sources and Context of the Book of Concord, but he also has a nice little um, biography of Luther um, that is worth checking out, a quick read. Martin Luther, a life, um, as well as the kind, of the well-known in, in a number of circles, at least, um, free to be based on the Catechism, that was written with Gerhard Ferdy. Um, a number, another bunch of other information is shared about Jim then, that follows. Um, but really, a a um, prolific author. He published a lot, um, but the best way uh, to get to know Jim and to learn from Jim was to listen to him uh, talk and especially to hear him tell a story. And he had a way of connecting those stories uh, to Christ. Those stories became preachments. Uh, he was, um, his dissertation work was on the Eisenach Synod, um, and so the Genesio Lutherans, the Philippists, and the debate about the role of the law, if the law can be said to be abstractly, um, theoretically, uh, necessary for salvation. Um, and he also uh, worked a lot with the doctrine of election, namely with making our election known um, through the absolution. He was a, a teacher of forgiveness, a teacher of the power of the absolution. And so with that in mind, um, we're going to see that come out in this study of justification by faith in Luther's small catechism I often tell my students there's a couple videos I, I show of, of Jim speaking in, in different classes. And I say uh, he would make a great voice for an audio book of the catechisms. Uh, it, it would just be like <laughs> listening to your Midwestern grandpa um, <clears throat> speak the catechism to you. And he was a great student of the catechisms. And so we'll be looking at the small catechism and, and where is justification by faith in that document. Um, once again, we are a part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. Encourage you to check that out. There's a bunch of podcasts that you can check out, um, but also a whole lot more at 1517.org. Books, devotions, um, daily on the Internet, um, free academy courses. There's just a lot of resources. You can watch speeches from or presentations from past conferences. So you can go to 1517.org and uh, check all that out. Um, without further ado then, um, I will let Mike give our disclaimer and we'll make our way into the main topic. This show doesn't speak for our churches or church bodies or our employers, to be honest. Much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way.
And that brings us uh, to our main topic, which is this article, Justification by Faith in Luther's Small Catechism by Jim Nestingen. Um, I was going to write down what issue of Logia this was, and I completely forgot. I pulled it off of Atla um, and shared it with Michael. So I, I'll try to remember to go back and look and put that in the, the show notes. But if you um, if you search Logia issues, you will find this um, article in Logia. Um, I am an editorial associate for Logia. Mm-hmm. Michael, you mm-hmm. might not have... Mm. I have known that. Mm, that's impressive. Uh, I'm even on the executive committee. Oh, my goodness. Only executive thing I've ever done. Um, but Logia is meant to be a free conference in print where we can get um, a variety of Lutheran voices. Uh, nonetheless, we uh, hold ourselves to the theology of the old synodical conference. We're not just publishing anything willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. Um, but Nessingen is exactly like one of those voices that it's great to have um, contribute to Logia. Um, and... And on this topic, I think very helpful. And maybe just if we can set the stage a little bit, um, probably one of Luther's most cherished works, uh, one that he returns to again and again, is the small catechism. Um, There's a great book Todd Haynes has now, and I'm almost uh, uh, done with it. Um, mm, I showed it to you, but I didn't take a picture. I should have sent a picture. Um, But he does a great job. It's on Luther on Scripture. But he basically gets how really the key for Luther for under, under um, interpreting the scriptures, understanding the scriptures, is the the catechism, and by that he doesn't mean simply the um, the catechism that Luther wrote, but what the catechism contains, um, the especially uh, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed. Now the Apostles' Creed is the the redheaded stepchild there and that it's not directly from scripture, um, but it is scriptural and that it's basically just a summary of the scriptures themselves. And, and Haynes points out that this is really Luther is just interpreting then things in light of this and um, through law and gospel. I think I found it a Martin Luther and the rule of faith. I really would encourage people to maybe check that, that out. Well, Jim in this uh, is going to get at how, um, Luther views the small catechism, what he's doing there, and he's he's kind of a filling a lacuna, a lacuna here, a gap, um, in that if you read the small catechism, um, as Lutherans we talk about the doctrine of justification being the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, and yet um, in the small catechism there's not really like a section on justification by grace through faith. There's there's not like a um, a chief part on the on the solas. Uh, we can speak of um, six chief parts of the catechism if we talk about um, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, and then the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and absolution. Or we can talk about the three chief parts, which is what most catechisms are based on. They're going to talk about these three things in general. If I'm not mistaken, Luther had a a Bierstein. Am I right in this, Michael? That was those three parts, hmm. um, which was the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. And when you had the um, antinomian debate with Agricola, um, the uh, I can't remember the order of what he was drinking, but he offered Agricola to have some beer from this, this <laughs> Stein, um, and Agricola could not finish the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and uh, and so Luther made a, a joke about not being able to, to swallow the Ten Commandments. Um, but it is, if you've studied the small catechism, there's there's not like a um, pronounced emphasis in it. 
in a set place, like set apart um, on justification by faith. And in fact, something... Or sanctification or lots of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that... I know in seminary we would discuss, I I think probably we even discussed with Peel and Borland and all that group, um, why does it begin with the Ten Commandments, right? We're a gospel people. Why do we start um, with the law? And these are these are things that um, Jim is going to tackle in this this short article, very digestive digestible article. The few places it gets a little maybe tricky that you might be unfamiliar with stuff is when he's talking like about contemporary scholarship on this. But you can uh, you can make your way through that, and, and he's going to bring it home at the end. And so maybe Michael, I'll throw it to you first. I have I have some things marked up and highlighted, but did you have a, a general takeaway or general thought or anything that particularly stood out to you? In this or anything, um, just about uh, Jim in general and his work that that comes. Well, along. absolutely. So um, when I'm reading this, <clears throat> I'm reading it. it my mind is um, well. It's in a couple of different places. One is when I was first not really learning the catechism because I just you know whatever as an as a middle school yeah, child. You grew up with the normal way, right. yeah. And. Um, but then when you really had to learn it, which is when you had to teach it, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I did, I did, okay, you, I would teach the word sanctification, justification, trinity, all those things. And that's not necessarily a wrong thing. But that, that's one way I look at that. And, and, and I think he's right on when he is saying um, this is first or this that's second order proclamation to teach first order order proclamation is for you language Th- this this statement does something proclamatory maybe as yeah. opposed to like didactic yeah. it does something uh and and you can go all the way back to genesis 1 1 right it, god's word is creative power let there be light and there's light um the, the second uh thing that popped in my mind where, where I am in my headspace, I suppose that's a stupid way to say it, but, um, I, I'm kind of always thinking about what's the difference between, uh, you know, like a pre-modern way of looking at a modern way of looking at a postmodern way of looking. That's sort of, sort of my reference point when it comes to putting philosophy and history and worship and art all together and straight in my mind. And this is, a, a, and he doesn't pull this out. Um, but it's there, and he would thoroughly understand this, is what we're talking about is the way we hand down the faith to the next generation. Do we do it in a modern way or some other way? So um, a modern way, uh, think uh, uh, highly reasonable, right? A lot of faith in, in our ability to reason, to understand things. Uh, from a Roman Catholic point of view, this would maybe be um, seen as a uh, old scholastic Aristotelian categories kind of thing. Um, but this is a, this is a dangerous phrase to bring up in this. Uh, but but a, a Lutheran scholasticism, right? Kind of sort of comes after the the Lutheran Reformation. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to our day, and. When we were being taught and, and when we were uh, going through seminary and stuff, to be a teacher and to learn the way people learn was one of those, uh, it was considered a very high quality thing. So if you could preach 
like a teacher, if you could, you could teach with all the 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 new uh, pedagogical uh, theories, homiletical methods. This was beneficial for your people because, and this is where the modernism comes in. When we looked at our people, we looked at them as students to learn. We had to, we had to, we had to put their, we had to fill their brains with information. They needed to understand, digest, and then after that, then they would act, uh, not just believe, but then act out things and be able to articulate be and confess. Persuaded. Yep. So by the data. Yep. So and and this is uh, let's be honest. Which is kind of like the approach that the government took to um, <coughs> getting people to take the vaccine. Yeah. Not not I'm not being. I'm not, I'm not, not making argue, a statement but, on that. But I mean, like, what did you? What did they try to do? They tried to give people data, yep. and that data, knowing the right things, would lead to doing the right things. So the modern way of looking at a human being assumes their free will, <laughs> assumes that uh, the reason, if not autonomous, um, can uh, capture things and understand them. So just in class today, I was talking about the Trinity, and I just stopped and said. Um, how arrogant for somebody, and this is totally modern, how arrogant for somebody to say, because I don't understand this, therefore it's not true, right? This is a, a, a modern hubris that we have. Now, when we were first preachers, I'm willing to bet that we were doctrinal preachers mm -hmm. and we wanted to teach people things. And so we had an outline and we had parts and God forbid we didn't have a theme and all of this is pedagogical. All of this is didactic. And then the light bulb went on, I think, for both of us, independent of each other, that... Um, we were like Luther and Zwingli. Yeah. <laughs> Who's Zwingli? Anyway. We got to wait to see. <laughs> uh, that, that it's much more about proclaiming first order pro proclamation. So I, we bring this up all the time, at least I do in the podcast. There's a difference between preaching about the gospel and preaching the gospel. So Nestigan's point here is to say, just because Luther doesn't start out with, hey, here's the meaning of the word justification, does not mean that justification is not central to the catechism. It's just a confessing. It's a first article proclamation kind of thing. It's not a doctrinal thing, right? Um, now, is doctrine involved? Should you teach the word justification? Well, of course, and it's very helpful to do so. But you do it in a way where you are saying, um, this is for you, right? Uh, so, you know, like, uh, this is kind of a two kinds of righteousness things like say, here's how you can theoretically, but justified by the law. That's how you normally think, but that's a dead end. But here's a different way. You are righteous mm -hmm. and leave it at that. And, um, the, and the words are doing what they're saying. It's, yeah. it's not a convincing. Yep. It's a, um, declaring. And this, uh, by the way, to go off script a little bit is, I think helpful when we think about sanctification and, and I keep going back to Romans chapter six where uh, Paul is setting up his argument, right? And he is, um, uh, he has made the case that uh, this is not a wage system, but a gift system. So uh, if you want to go down the, the road of being righteous by law, then you're in a wage system and the wages of sin is death. Um, but the, the other system, the righteousness by faith is a gift system. The gift is the righteousness uh, that is given through faith. And then he anticipates the question, uh, the, anticipa the question that the Roman Catholics asked uh, 
um, or we're going to accuse the Lutherans of. What are you going to do when, when, when grace is free? Those drunk Germans are going to do all sorts of things. It's the same thing we do when we, um, we pump the brakes on the gospel, mm-hmm. right? We're too, we're too afraid that the gospel may be too free and people are going to take advantage of it. That uh, people might actually believe it. Yeah. And that, or, but that, or, they would, that they would believe it. Um, but then abuse it. Right. The fear is that they will, that they'll understand what we're saying. I shouldn't say believe it. The fear is that they'll actually listen, yeah. but not believe. They will cognitively understand right. it, but the gospel itself will not change them. Right. Because our mindset is that we are we are teachers and students. So in Romans chapter six, Saint Paul I think answers that question. Um, with with baptism, he says, "Don't you know that all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have uh, been crucified, buried, and, and resurrected with Christ?" And and my translation is this: uh, the question is, won't people just keep on sinning? And Saint Paul says, "But that's not who they are anymore. Mm-hmm. That's not who you are anymore." So it's not just uh, uh, when we talk about justification as. Uh, something like I'm, I'm dancing around the gospel, I'm preaching about it, and you understand it didactically rather than you're forgiven for that, right? Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, part of the reason why absolution goes by the wayside in the modern period, right? Because that declaratory you are forgiven just can't work. Right. And, but that's also true of sanctification. I think the language should be, but that's not who you are anymore. This, mm-hmm. is, this is what you are right now. So uh, the Holy Spirit has um, enlightened you, sanctified you, and will keep you in the true faith. This is who you are anymore. And then, of course, the next thing is, uh, you know, you have to teach the symbol and understand that we're sinner saints. But I think, uh, you know, Nestigan starts off on the first page um, by noticing what Wengert uh, uh, and, and Kolb have said is that Vasa's Das um, mm-hmm. is, is not really what does this mean, right? That's a didactic sort of question, but what is this? What yeah. is this? Or, or better yet, sometimes, who is this? This is the Spirit. This is the, the Son of God doing something. And, and, that's, and that that's Luther a, then takes three articles versus 12, because you, you could consider, for instance, the Apostles' Creed, anciently, according to 12 articles, but to use that as an example of the Apostles' Creed and the Vasus Das, or who is this even? Who is this? Luther takes it in a relational way. He breaks it into the three persons, not just data. And, and I can't tell you, I, I don't think we can overestimate this. And um, so, so, you know, we sit in pews now rather than uh, standing in pulpits, at least uh, in a far greater uh, percentage than we did when we were, we were uh, preachers, full-time preachers. And... Um, so it, it's hard to sit in the in the pew as a preacher, much like it's uh, hard to go to a doctor if you're a doctor. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be a um, you know be on trial in a courtroom and and you're a lawyer and you have a lawyer. You just want to correct all the time. And, and so going from the the parish to to the pew, um, you know, I thought, well, how am I going to handle this? And and I, I never have found myself saying, oh, that was incorrect, or I would have done it that way. Or here's a nuance that he missed, although maybe that's partly. In fact, more often than not, I go, oh, man, I never thought about that. But what has stood out to me is I can tell right away, is that guy preaching about the gospel or is he preaching the gospel? And is 
is the catechism about preaching about the faith. And so you can list all the 12 apostles and you can list all the definitions, or is it something that, that sustains faith and is something that is uh, uh, given, it's a yeah. gift, and it does something, it changes people's hearts. And who gives a flying flip at oh, the end for a second. if the kid can rattle off this, that, or the other thing? And right? maybe is this a bad way to say it, Michael? Um, I find my way, myself sometimes thinking of it this way. Paul in Ephesians, right? I'm teaching Paul in Epistles. Um, he starts off, he talks all about our, our election, but when is our election made known? When are we sealed? When we receive the word of God. Um, so I found myself with the same thing, listening to Pratch. Is he electing me or educating me? Mm. Right? Is he making my election known to me, which mm -hmm. is doing something, or is he giving me um, facts? Mm -hmm. and, and even, again, not to harp on the And facts aren't bad. Yeah. I'm not saying... Christianity you can't have is not it without facts. Right, yeah, you it, can have it without facts. Right. There's the balance there, and in apologetics, this is important because there's always a debate. If you do apologetics, aren't you where you're you're, you're denying faith, and you have these kind of old tropes? Um, but the point is that the apostles were eyewitnesses. There was facts there, but you fully understand that you have to believe facts. I don't care if you're an atheist; you have to believe right, facts. Yep. You have to you have to be trusting. And because we are enemies of God, you need the Holy Spirit to give us that, that, that trust. Um, so not to harp on that modern thing over and over again, but it, it is, it's really foundational to our, our preaching and teaching right now, um, although I think it's changing, that we, we, want to, we want to teach people. And so when I think about a sermon, the way I explain it in worship classes, like when we get to the sermon, I say, uh, um, a sermon is, is, um, is not didactic, but it teaches. It is not an inspiring story, but it does inspire. It does not, uh, you know, and I, I name off a couple of things. These things do happen, and notice the word, they happen on the person. But primarily... Um, the sermon is an extension of confession absolution. I want you to get to, to the point where you know that you are sinful. I want to put the law on you. I want to, I want to take the hammer and, and shatter you to pieces, and then I want the gospel to come and heal. I want it to, to come out of my mouth and into your heart, and I want it to do something. It's not like, okay, it comes in and it rattles around in your brain and then you make a decision or you learn something. No, it comes and it does something mm -hmm. to you. Um, this is what we, I think primarily what we mean when the scriptures read you rather than you reading the scriptures. Yeah, and um, I thought uh, he makes a good point, and he's not going to say modernity as you're saying, but he's making a very similar point where he's going to contrast Luther and Melanchthon, and so Melanchthon he will talk about um, Will, as he writes documents like this, as he writes confessions, and think of the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, which are not bad, Jim's not mm -hmm. saying they're bad, um, but they're doctrinal confessions. Um, for Luther, this confession, this small catechism, and confession in general, mm -hmm. and I think the small called articles do have a different feel than oh, the other confessions in this, yeah. um, is proclamation. So he's going to hit on this on, on page 16. Um, and so he says there, but, but for Luther, the test or measure of doctrine is not a mathematical conformity to an established pattern. And sometimes for Melanchthon, it could be that, and there's a place for that sometimes. And I will say, Flacius, or Flacius, however we decided to say it, 
is much more like Melanchthon in this. And this is where Jim will talk about the Eisenach Synod. And um, um, Flacius ends up taking a more Melanchthonian position. Melanchthon's a teacher. Yep. And, and Luther's so, a pastor. So yeah. is Flacius, right? He's an unordained. He's an instructor. Um, it's not that Luther doesn't care about doctrine. He writes some stuff about doctrine. Um, but it's uh, rather, he says, doctrine does not justify. Christ does, as the little uh, catechism declares in its triune formulations. So for Luther, um, doctrine is meant to be uh, preached, right? <clears throat> it's proclaimed. And this is the first order in contrast. And I would say here, we see this in modernity, um, in American Lutheran especially, and that like it's really hard just to like buy a small catechism from most synodical yeah, publishing yeah. houses. What do you get? You get a much bigger book that has a bunch of stuff that's been edited. And there's a place for that. I'm not saying pastors like throw out the blue mm -hmm. book or the burgundy book or whatever you're you're using now. Um, but we have had this temptation to just keep expanding that mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that you even get sections in there now that have nothing to do with the small catechism but like inter-Lutheran debates that happened in the American <laughs> setting in the 19th century even that will make their, their way in. And what this can do is give the um, probably unintended but unfortunate impression that the catechism is a textbook more than a prayer book. Yep. Um, and when Luther talks about the catechism... And when you're done with the textbook, you don't go back to it. Right, you know the stuff. Luther often talks about praying the catechism. Um, and it's in, in the catechism as prayer um, that, the, um, that the work of Christ, that justification by faith alone, is found as I pray through especially the creed and what God has done there um, to save me. And there uh, Jim brings out in that connection too that, um, and this is in Luther also, but... Uh, kind of the legal framework for justification was emphasized by Melanchthon and I would say also by Flacius um, as well. Um, but for Luther, often um, the relational angle of justification is what is um, emphasized. And, and Paul can do both, right? Um, but that's where I really like that you took it to the were our talk, Michael, because <clears throat> the legal framework's important, but probably most often, how do we hear justification presented? We hear it presented um, as far as like um, a debt is paid. Mm -hmm. Forensic. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so Which someone's... Which is accurate and fine. Right. Someone stood trial for me and, and now this. Um, and that, that's biblical. But the were are really is biblical as well. And I would, I would venture to say Paul uses the were are a lot more in his epistles. Um, Explain that a little bit more. <laughs> That is what you were. This is what you now gotcha. are. Do not live as the Gentiles mm -hmm. do like you used to do, but as you now are. Um, you are a new creation for the Paschal Lamb has been slain. New birth, born again. <laughs> yes. Um, where where Paul will, you know, sometimes when he talks about works of the flesh or, or things like that, he'll say, these are things you used to do, but now we don't practice. They're not what we are. We don't practice them, meaning they're not defining of us, not that we never sin in weakness. Um and that talk then is relational. Well, what is the R that I am now? I'm an adopted child of God. I'm a brother of Christ. I'm one in whom the Spirit dwells. I'm a temple of God. And uh, in there then, what what Luther is doing in the creed, with the Apostles' Creed, with the first, second, and third article, well, it's he's telling me what my family has done for me and does for me, right? 
Um, and so you often will make this distinction, and I think it's a helpful one. Are you a first article Christian or a second article? Um, I think Jim would say here um, in there would be an extra distinction of like, are you a, a first order mm-hmm. second article? Um, but where justification by grace through faith alone is found is is in those um, articles of the creed, as Luther explains them, how I relate to God and what is God doing? God is creating, justifying, sanctifying. And the emphasis is on God's work in all three of those things. And and I think that's another healthy thing. Luther's using sanctification in the broad sense. Mm-hmm. We, I would say, overwhelmingly sanctification in the American Lutheran Church today gets used in the narrow sense, mm-hmm. um, meaning what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, the scriptures do not use it primarily in the narrow sense, although there, it mm-hmm. can be used, and I'm not mm-hmm. denying that. Um, but also I think what he does... Um, what he points out that Luther does that emphasizes justification by grace through faith alone is that he does lead with the Ten Commandments. But as he leads with the Ten Commandments, Jim points out, he waits to to bring up the power of sin until after he hits the gospel. So we're going to get the Ten Commandments and we should examine ourselves according to them um, and we do sin against them, but he'll bring in the power of sin later. Luther will. Um, but, but he starts with the Ten Commandments um, Jim argues, at least, um, because that's our experience. We're we're born into um, a religion of law. Mm-hmm. We're born into a world of law. Um, from from our first breath, we are under law, meaning we are under the Ten Commandments. Um, so this is how we experience things. We don't we don't come to um, God first through the gospel. Um, rather, the law is the penultimate. It's the thing before the last. Well, then once we get the Ten Commandments, which have no mention of us being saved, mm-hmm. this is just largely anthropological. Mm-hmm. Now, where do we get Apostles' Creed? And now the ultimate word comes, which is to be the defining word. And then what do I do? I pray. And what do I right? What do I pray? I pray what God puts in my mouth. I love that Jim points that out. The Lord's prayer is, is God's words in my mm-hmm. mouth, right? Um, how do I, um, how do I now uh, receive that faith and live in it? Well, in the sacraments, and in the Word um, that follows. Um, but I think uh, as he hits on that, and that gets again to the Ten Commandments uh, or the justification, the were our stuff as well, because we begin with the Ten Commandments. That is what you were. That's all you had. That's all you had to try to relate to God. But now you are the Apostles' Creed. And now, yes, those commandments um, keep me from coming up with my own works, which I love to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, they point to me what's actually beneficial for my neighbor, which sometimes it's hard for me to actually stop and consider and figure out. Um, but all they are are examples of how I walk as what I am mm-hmm. and not as what I um, used to be. Um, and I think how that relates, he does a very good job um, that this not only it assumes but operates um, explicitly on the doctor, uh, doctrine of justification by grace um, through faith. I talked a lot there, Michael. Anything else you wanted to hit on so far? Um, no, I was just thinking that uh, we probably should do a, one on the Psalms and prayer. I think mm-hmm. that, that there's I, a lot of connections between the Psalms and the Catechism. Yeah, and like thinking of like not only does God put the words in my mouth, much like a parent puts the words in the mouths of a child, say, I love you, say, please, thank you. Not because the parent's only going to love the child if they ask, right? Right. But, 
building a thing of trust. And then the Psalms, if you pray the Psalms and pray the Catechism for that matter, not only does he give you the, the words, um, but he shows you uh, emotions and thoughts that either you didn't know how to articulate or maybe you didn't even know you had, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, so that again, that's, um, that's active things, right? The word, see, and this is maybe a, a good way to summarize it. The word is not passive. It's an active thing. You're passive. When it's a, a didactic way of looking at things, the, the, the learner is active and the information is passive. It's there and the learner acts on it in a certain way, right? Not completely, but acts on it, finds it, organizes it, uh, puts it into categorize it, systematizes it, which now, again, is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to the word of God and faith, the word of God is active and the person is passive, even to the point of my sanctification. Yes, I'm active in it, but it's Christ in me. So in a certain way, I'm passive, right? I'd be careful right. here. Yep. Be careful I get here. But um, and prayer, um, it's, it's, the, it's the words that have been given to me. Um, even and even the, the spirit helps me speak them. In yeah. fact, when I don't have the words, he, yeah. And even, you know, in, in my suffering, I'm suffering with Christ, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's just, and, and, you know, I, more and more, especially when I, I do the worship thing, uh, we talk about worship being Christocentric and, and then everybody goes, oh yes, of course. And I say, it's one of those things like, uh, do you believe in the Bible? Everybody does. Everybody's Christocentric. It's not like there's any Christian ever that has said, I'm not Christocentric. But what we mean is... I think, think Jason said it once. Yeah. I told him not to say it anymore. Think, think of like a, a circle um, with Christ in the middle. Christ is in the middle centri- as, we, as we dance around the circle. And I think uh, more often than not, it should be like there's a cross... Uh, imagine this on a, a whiteboard, there's a cross, and then you start to draw a circle, but instead of completing the circle, the, the circle ends up getting pulled into Christ. Mm-hmm. So you become in Christ, you become in, you're, you're pulled into Christ. Um, you, you die with him. You are resurrected with him. Um, he lives in you. You are his co-worker in vocation. You are his co-sufferer, right? You get, you get, you get pulled into Christ is a better way to think about it than, um, I'm doing my own thing, and then once in a while I give a little wink to Jesus in the center. And I think that would be the, the danger had Luther put the Ten Commandments after the creed, is that sometimes we get the notion that the Christian life is this, um, and that sanctification is like us growing more and more self-sufficient. Like, we view it like we like being a child, you know, um, like going from being a toddler, you know, and, and you become more and more self-sufficient. Um, that's the opposite of what sanctification is. Sanctification is becoming more and more at home in your dependency um, and realizing that even um, in my works, there's a, a, a degree of passivity um, that, as our confessions say, it's not like two oxen pulling a cart where they each pull equally. I'm like the, the little, um, what do you call those little tiny horses? Um, a tiny horse. Is that what they're called? I don't know. With like a Clydesdale. Um, and I get to kind of joyfully, mm-hmm. like kind of just like jog along. Um, or the mask language that God is. Right. Yeah. Wearing because when you put the commandments after, and I would say that this does happen in preaching sometimes, um, that return to the law almost becomes now, now grow up and do all these things. Mm-hmm. And the turn becomes to like, I am now 
supposed to kind of, in an American sense, pull myself up by the bootstraps or in like a getting in shape. You know, I'm, I take these steps where, where actually um, it's, it's being more um, open to God being at work in and through you. It's kind of like having to seek out good works and therefore not doing many versus recognizing when they come to you and doing them even if it means they're not the ones you would have picked as your first choice. Yeah, and another modern mindset that we love the, quite frankly, very few passages that talk about maturity. Right. Right? And that was, I mean, spiritual growth was, oh my gosh, just nonstop. And that's a modern mindset that we would always be getting better, right? That right. stock market will always go up, the next generation will always get better. Um, that's an evolutionary mindset in, in a very, in a very real way. Now that's not to say it doesn't happen in the same way. I said, the sermon is not didactic, but it teaches. So, uh, it's not about your maturity, but will you, will you mature? Yeah. I'd like to think so. Although yeah. some days, you know, it's, it's not a straight arrow. And, and I think, um, when it's, it's the, it's the, um, emphasis is on the wrong place there. Right. Um, if you're if you're concerned with your own spiritual growth and maturity, um, that's not very mature. Uh, a true mature person gets to the point where they don't really care if they are have grown or not. Right. Um, you just get lost in the love of neighbor. Right. And so um, I, I think there's something there again, not to harp on it too much. But again, I think that we are. um servants to this modern mindset and what what i find very refreshing and by modern if you're if you're not as familiar with mike using that but let's say we have someone listening who's very yeah. familiar with jim or um jim's colleagues you know Freddie paulson's um work uh by modern just think second order yeah um or, or the modern period after the enlightenment industrial revolution uh, uh, you know um uh, uh a faith in humanity and reason and, and, and stuff like that. And so we think of ourselves as either animals, machines, or better yet thinking things. We're, we're educators and, and students primarily, not that we aren't, um, but it's something completely different than what the ancients right. would have described a human being as. Although it's, it's similar in, in one key way, which I, I find fascinating. Um, so both Plato and Aristotle have kind of an optimism about human beings when you when you get down to the court, and this is Kierkegaard's great critique of them. Um, and modernity kind of had the same optimism about human beings until like the world wars and yeah, World War One. Um, but uh, that optimism led to this thinking, both um, with some of the the Athenian schools of thought um, and modernity, of if you just gave people the right information they do the right thing. Mm -hmm. If you just gave them the right information, maybe a nudge in the right direction, they do the right thing. And, uh, and Kierkegaard, right, is going to say, no, the problem is not knowledge, the problem is the will. Mm -hmm. And that's where second order um, uh, teaching or preaching is always going to fall short in the end. Is, right, when Paul talks about equipping, what does he talk about equipping? Equipping the saints. Well, what's a saint? A saint's a believer. <clears throat> You're not equipping them to be saints. Mm -hmm. They are saints. Um, and when Paul says, for instance, um, live a life worthy of your calling, he's not saying live a life to be worthy of being called. He's saying you're called, right? Yep. Um, so this isn't uh, the one touch point with antiquity is just if we just give them the right information, then they'll do the right thing. 
which becomes a great frustration for young pastors, or at least it was for me, mm-hmm. of like, I'm preaching every Sunday. I'm teaching Bible classes. Mm-hmm. I am giving them this information. Mm-hmm. I know they know it. I've talked to them. How could they do th- Well, now this is this is where what they need for me um, is not algebra. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they need proclamation. Yeah, and, and late modernity, or if you want late capitalism, um, it, it, it does become... I, I'm selling something to you, and you can make this yep. decision. And which and Paul, the, by the way, for all the uh, as enamored as we can get today, teaching Paul in epistles, I just love how many times he's like, "By the way, I'm not one of these." And then he describes what would be marketing today, like the itinerant <laughs> sophist teachers with their rhetoric and looking for profit. But then yeah. somehow we can still manage to read the New Testament today and be like, "We should totally market that," even though like that's Paul leads with it again right. and again. And and I think you know we, we maybe should. Uh, this one we'd have to prepare for, but an episode of, you know, we'll call it the, you know, what is a human being? Like all the different things that homo sapiens or whatever. And one of them is, well, how do we normally think of ourselves, right? Okay, maybe we think of ourselves as machines, animals, educators, and teachers, consumers, right? And um, the church largely in the, you know, late 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, right, saw people as consumers, that assumes a free will, assumes that if they have the right information, they can change their life, assumes that... Uh, Human responsibility. Yep. It, uh, it assumes that if we keep doing the right thing and best practices, then the growth will be unlimited. Uh, it assumes all of these things. And um, I think what got lost a lot of that is not only the gospel, but the specifically the first order of proclamation. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard this. Like, we get the gospel, now what? That's the important yep. part. Like constantly we were told apply 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 what's the application what's the application what's the application you know what the application is a death and resurrection Mm -hmm. that's the application it's not like oh and then i have to apply that to my life you know what's more applicable to that is it is the is the death of the sinful nature and a resurrection of the new and and it's again it's like okay now what do i do how does this apply instead of actually trusting the gospel to do what it's promised to do. Yep, and not a and not even a death in a life um that's like just me, right? It's not just my death in life, but it's death to myself and life to Christ. Mm-hmm. It's a this 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 death into new life is relational. I'm constantly dying to myself and and I'm being crucified with Christ so the life I now live I live by faith. So that the, I mean, the thesis statement of almost all Paul's letters is this, a statement of faith alone. Um, and I think that Jim in his life and in this essay gets at that very well. Um, if there's one thing he was very good at boiling it, things down to was in the end, what everyone needs is an absolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm guessing you saw this in counseling in the parish too, that I, I eventually learned over time, 99% of counseling was just patiently waiting until you could get to the absolution. <clears throat> Convincing them that maybe they needed forgiveness. Right. Um, that that just maybe the source of um, strife in this world is sin, and not even always just personal sin, but just sin in the world. Um, and that even what so- sometimes what someone needed, even though they had not sinned, was an absolution for their fake sin, mm-hmm. because the devil had gotten a hold of. Mm-hmm. You can see this with abuse victims where mm-hmm. they feel guilty for something they didn't do. That at the end of the day, the thing people need is an absolution. Um, and that should be the thing that kind of defines what you get at church. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, um, you know, Jim brings home uh, as he gets to the end of this um, 
is, uh, is that this is what Luther then does. We get to the Apostles' Creed, we get the solution that is Christ, and now we get the power of sin, which goes back and explains why the Ten Commandments weren't working. We get the Ten Commandments. Luther doesn't fill us in a lot on the issue, although the first commandment kind of does. He starts with faith. Um, but then we get to Christ and the power of the sin, and, I'm, and the third article that I'm dead, right? I can't by my own thinking or choosing. So we get the solution, and now we can see the problem. Um, and, that, and that's not so that we can now dive back into the problem. That's why Paul writes Galatians. What are you, what are you guys doing? Um, but so now that we can, we can live in the solution, um, and I think that was um, almost all the best stories I remember from Jim were about, in the end, someone got absolved. Mm-hmm. Whether it was him getting absolved or him absolving someone else or someone else absolving someone else. And um, I think uh, that would be a credit to about anyone's ministry if that's what was remembered at the end. And it really, um, hopefully that can be the defining. <clears throat> um, we're going to be going, Michael, and you're going to be speaking there. And I'll try this. Get this out before to a, to our synods national leadership conference, which should be very good. I'm looking forward to it. There's a number of good speakers, whatever. Um, and the, these are these are good things to have. And Michael's going to be speaking. I'm sure these will all be really good presentations. Um, what I'm really hoping to hear, and I'm I won't be disappointed, right, Michael? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> is um is what it means um to be leaders in the church as it pertains to the one thing we have, which the world does not, which is the, the forgiving word of, of God, right? Because otherwise, if it becomes just best practices, right. as we talk about for businesses, um, not only wrong, there's things we could do, but right. we've, we've been around, right, but we've seen things. Snooze. Yeah, but at the end of the day, um, what animates the church, um, what makes it worth giving a hearing to, um, is going to be the absolution, which that is where justification by grace through faith is in Luther's small catechism. It's in it's in the creed. It's in the explanation to, to the articles where God is doing the verbs. He's doing them for us, and then he's working through us. Um, and so while there's no set article or there's not a, um, a creedal articulation or a formulaic. Systematic. Yeah, yeah. systematic is a better way to say it. Um, it is what drives um, the small catechism. And so maybe maybe this will be um, my challenge to our listeners and to myself. And um, maybe we do it once just in memory for Jim and thankfulness for his ministry. Get out your small catechism and not the expanded. Pull it up online if you have to. Print it off. Pray through that bad boy. Maybe for a week. Mm-hmm. But pray through it. Um, and pray through it, um, knowing that what under what lies underneath it is Christ for you, and I think you'll find that to be a a very beneficial, um, refreshing, probably. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm going to do that. All right. And then you don't have to if you don't want. I'm to. not making promises because okay. that's we could do it together at the leadership so, conference. Like go. in the corner, we'll just go kneel and yeah. That wouldn't be okay. weird, would it? I'll bring my um, prayer mat. We'll face east because Jerusalem. Yeah, sounds good. The um, grow but, out your beard a little bit. Yeah, I just did shave, so that'll. Um, but I do. Uh, just as we wrap up, um, once again, want to say, um, encourage you. Um, if you never heard Jim speak, go on YouTube, put in his name, 
Jim Nestigan, James. Um, you will find um, some videos that are very much worth listening to. Enjoy his voice. It just was one of those things you hear, um, and it, it just sticks with you. Um, as as Paulson said at the funeral sermon, uh, which I watched online, you just you you hear the Bible in Jim's voice after you hear him read it. And f- there's one <clears throat> little clip. I don't know if it's online or not. Um, about t- telling the story about speaking in Detroit and uh, um, uh, an inner city church had just lost its pastor and the, and the organ, the or, no, the organist or whatever. I haven't seen this one often. And then they, he's talking about the power of the liturgy and they, they all collectively sang the historic rite right. from memory and stuff. And, and the way he tells the story is just yeah. like a tear in your eye kind of thing. So. Yeah, I would I would encourage you to go back for that. I um I, I am not claiming to have been a, a close personal friend, but I, I did get to have a number of lovely encounters with him. Got to sit with him on a boat once uh, out at fifteen seventeen when they had the little speakers thing. Um, and he definitely left his mark. And so I thank God for the ministry of him. We thank God. I'm sure fifteen seventeen. I know it does as well. And um, I hope you'll benefit from that. And maybe check out, if you want, in Logia, Justification by Faith in Luther's Small Catechism. In the meanwhile, I think Jim would, would fully approve of us encouraging you to let the bird fly.